Good morning. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 on the FM dial in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond, and streaming around the world and around the clock on nhtalkradio.com. By the way, if you're wondering, Aaron Judge still stuck on 61 home runs. The Yankees uh, won their game last night 3-1 to one in Texas. Judge uh, one for four with one strikeout. Two teams will play a day-night doubleheader today in uh, Arlington, Texas. Well, joining us uh, today is an author that I met uh, several months ago in uh, Lancaster, uh, New Hampshire. Eric Pinder is our guest. Eric, uh, welcome to the program. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. And uh, Eric, for seven years, lived and worked as a weather observer atop Mount Washington. And as a result of his experiences on top of the rock pile, Eric has written uh, several books, including uh, the one we're going to chat about today, appropriately entitled Life at the Top, Weather, Wonder, and high cuisine from the Mount Washington Observatory. Eric, what inspired you to become a weather observer atop New England's highest peak? I was working in a windowless office in Massachusetts in a very boring job when a friend called up and said, hey, I just saw this job opening that seems like your kind of thing up on top of Mount Washington. Uh, the thing was, it was the very last day to apply. Oh, boy. But I got my application in. Uh, it was a, a seasonal job on Mount Washington. Uh, it, was, it was only a three-month job originally, but while I was there, a full-time weather observer position opened up, and I was offered it, and I took it, and I guess I liked it because I stayed for seven more years. And the, the rest, as they say, is history. Did you always have uh, an interest in the weather? I've always had an interest in nature and science. Uh, in college, I dabbled in science. Geology was one of my favorite classes because it, it took us outside. And, of course, I also took a lot of writing classes. So I sort of turned that into a major of writing about nature and science. And that made Mount Washington a, uh, a perfect setting for me. Well, I, could, I could combine those two interests. You, you couldn't get much better when it comes to, to wild weather, that, that is for sure. And uh, we must point out that the, this edition of uh, Life at the Top is an updated version of a book that was originally published in 1997, uh, Life at the Top, Tales, Truths, or Truths, and Trusted Recipes from the Mount Washington Observatory. Uh, yes, we uh, we eat well up there to uh, to stay warm. So there are some recipes from the crew at yeah. the back of the book. That that is really something. And uh, one of these days, I might try a couple of those uh, because uh, the 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 book has plenty of recipes. Uh, the 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 one that was originally published in 1997, and uh, the one that was written when in uh, 2000, updated in 2009. Uh, yes, a little yep. over 10 years later. Yep. Uh, just so much had changed up there, it seemed like uh, an update was called for. So so what did change between uh, 1997 and uh, and this book, which, by the way, was uh, published at uh, Hobblebush Books in Concord uh, in 2009? What were, the, what were the changes? Well, one change, sadly, is we lost the world record. Uh, for the longest time, Mount Washington had the the world record for the fastest wind gust ever measured on Earth. 
231 miles per hour. And uh, uh, a while ago, a few years ago, uh, we sadly lost that record to a typhoon off the coast of Australia. So uh, all of those world record T-shirts are uh, now on discount. <laughs> and collector's items, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. So what, what was that wind gust that, that broke the 231 miles an hour? I believe that the new record is 253. Wow. I may be off by a, a digit or two, but it, it's, it's in that ballpark. Wow. But, but at, least, at least it holds true in North America. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. and it's still uh, it still has the nickname "Home of the World's Worst Weather," and uh, certainly the the extreme weather has not stopped, even though we we lost the record. Uh, there is still hurricane force winds. Uh, I, I counted one year, and I think uh, we had winds above hurricane force something like 110 days of the year. Wow! Uh, there there are entire weeks sometimes, especially in the winter when it's just blowing hurricane force wind all week long uh, and just never letting up. So there aren't too many places in the world where you can go and, and experience that on a regular basis. Very, very true. And, and certainly another great part of the job is it, it is the uh, highest paying job in New England, I understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, at, at least in the, uh, in the sense of altitude. All right. So when was the, the, the first weather observatory uh, built on Mount Washington? Uh, the the Mount Washington Observatory, the the organization that is still there now, uh, was founded in 1932. Although, if we go back further, in the 1880s, there was a U.S. Army Signal Corps station monitoring the weather on Mount Washington as well. Uh, so then, in 1932, the Mount Washington Observatory uh, picked up their tradition and has been uh, studying the weather ever since. But weather forecasting uh, actually took place, uh, you know, quite a few years before that. Oh, weather forecasting has been uh, going on as a science uh, for, for a long, long time. Uh, I believe uh, Thomas Jefferson used to uh, take a, take a uh, weather observation uh, every day or every few hours every day, uh, going way back to the 1700s. So it's been a, it has been a growing science. I think uh, once uh, technology reached the point where we could put satellites in orbit, that helped us see a lot more and weather forecasts began to get a lot better. And, uh, you, you know, you mentioned how wild the weather is up there. Uh, you mentioned lots of wind, and uh, I, I guess you would certainly expect that. But I, I, I don't think a lot of people realize how much fog there is at the top of the rock pile. Yes, uh, 300 days a year, the summit will be in the fog. Uh, if you're down below, like in North Conway, looking up, you'll probably uh, see uh, you know, a cloud covering the summit. Uh, but if you're up on the summit, it just seems like you're, you're in the fog. And sometimes the fog is so thick, uh, it almost feels like you could almost swim in it. Uh, the fog could be so thick you can barely see five feet in front of you. And uh, because of that poor visibility, uh, that's why hikers, sadly, sometimes get uh, get lost, get into trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think some people uh, have the perception that, uh, you know, you're going to wake up every morning uh, on top of Mount Washington and, and be able to see for miles and miles, but that's not necessarily the case. No, no, there is, uh, there is that 300 uh, days a year of fog. However, Sometimes we are actually above the clouds, above the fog. Uh, uh, it's something called an undercast. Uh, you've heard of an overcast where right. we look up and just the sky is covered with clouds. Well, on Mount Washington, sometimes the summit is poking up above all the clouds. So everywhere else in New England has a gray, rainy, drizzly day. 
but we're up there in bright sunshine. It uh, it looks like the island is this little. Uh, it looks like the uh, mountain is this little rocky island, poking up among a sea of clouds, and it, it really does look like the ocean. The ri- the rippling waves of the clouds. It looks like if you had a canoe, you could just walk down to the cloud line and paddle away. Wow. And uh, those were some of my favorite days. Uh, and uh, you mentioned uh, the wind, the fog, and how about thunder and lightning? You get a lot of that up there as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, that's probably my scariest moment when I was working there. Uh, we have a, a number of different weather instruments, and one of them, when the winds are light, is a, a spinning three-cup anemometer uh, measuring the wind speed. However, uh, it has to be taken down when the winds start to pick up because it, if it starts to spin spin too fast, it burns out the bearings. Uh, so to take it down, we have to go outside, climb to the very highest point of the tower uh, through this, uh, this little metal circle. Uh, and uh, one day the wind was picking up, and I knew I had to go take it down. So I'm outside at the highest point in New England uh, holding a metal instrument, and, oh, I, and I couldn't quite get the, uh, the, uh, the screw at the top off. It was starting to drizzle, and it was wet and slippery, and I was fumbling with it, so I was taking a while. And so while I'm there, standing at the very highest point in New England, holding a metal object, the sky suddenly is ablaze with lightning. Oh, uh, boy. That was, uh, that was the most frightening moment. Uh, I, I can imagine. I, I got it off in a hurry, and I went inside, and my, my heart was pounding for a while. I, I can well imagine. Our guest is Eric Pinder, and we're talking about a, a terrific book, uh, Life at the Top, Weather, Wonder, and High Cuisine. From the Mount Washington Observatory, Eric has already told you that the cuisine is wonderful up there, and there are lots of recipes in the book as well. It's a terrific book, and as we progress today, we're even going to talk a little bit about baseball, believe it or not. Not necessarily atop Mount Washington, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to a little bit of baseball later on in the program with Eric Pinder. Here on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond, and around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. Back with more after these words. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL. Great to have you along with us. And our guest today is Eric Pinder, author of Life at the Top, Weather, Wonder, and High Cuisine from the Mount Washington Observatory. And we talked about the wind, the fog, the thunder and lightning. And uh, Eric, I guess uh, even uh, some blizzards in the middle of May. Uh, occasionally, it will <laughs> snow any month of the year. Uh, it, it, it has even snowed in July at times. My, my goodness, it is, uh, it is really something. So uh, take us behind the scenes. Uh, what, what does it take uh, to be a weather observer uh, atop Mount Washington? But what kind of a person do you have to be? Well, you have to be good with numbers and be observant, uh, be good at noticing details. Uh, and I suppose, as far as personality, uh, you have to be the type of person who is willing to be away from home for eight days at a time. Uh, the normal shift up on the summit is uh, eight days at a time because it's too hard to commute up and down the mountain every day. Uh, so every Wednesday, the whole crew gathers together, 
and they hop in a uh, snowcat and ride up to the summit, and uh, they work for the next eight days before having some days off. Uh, some people really like that because then you get six days off and yeah. you can spend that with your family. Uh, but some people prefer a job where uh, you can go home every night. So when you go up, uh, the eight people who go up there, do do another eight people uh, come down? Oh, it's not always eight people. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's eight days. Eight uh, days usually, yeah. usually the crew is... Uh, uh, at least two people, usually three or four. Okay. Uh, sometimes there are some interns as well. Uh, so uh, they go up, and there's a crew already up there who, who go down in that I same see. snowcat. So they're, they're alternating weeks okay. with alternating shifts. Right. So uh, what, what would be the maximum amount of observers uh, atop the mountain? I'd say there are never more than uh, three or four observatory crew members there, um, but sometimes there is maybe a film crew filming a special. Yeah. Uh, uh, sometimes there is a, uh, a visiting group called an edu trip where people have paid to come up and st- uh, spend a night on the summit. Uh, so sometimes there are 20 people around the dinner table, and sometimes there are just two or three. I see. And uh, so uh, what, what's the typical shift? How, how long are the shifts? There's a day observer and a night observer. So the day observer usually gets up around 4 a.m. and works till 4 p.m., and then the night observer takes the other 12 hours. So someone is on duty 24 hours a day. And you worked a lot of that uh, early morning shift. I did. I did my first year, I did the night shift, and then the next six years, I mostly did uh, the day shift. And uh, I'm naturally a night person, so getting up at four in the morning took some getting used to. But uh, the, just seeing the sunrise, especially the sunrise over the, uh, the undercast, over that rippling sea of clouds, uh, that definitely made it worth it. So you, you're on duty for eight straight days and then off six, correct? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, normally, sometimes yeah. the weather is so bad that the shift change, the scheduled shift change can't happen. It's sort of like the opposite of a snow day when you're in school. You know, it snows and kids say, yay, we got the day off. Uh, if you're working on top of the mountain and the weather is so bad, the shift change can't happen. Uh, what that means is, oh, you thought you had a day off, but you actually have to keep working till tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then you got six days off, so that's uh, that's not, not a bad deal, right? Yeah. That, that's, so how, how do you get up there? I, uh, the bombardier, is that what they call it? Uh, yeah, a snowcat or a bombardier. Um, the trip up usually takes about two hours in ideal conditions. If it's really bad weather, lots of snow drifts, uh, sometimes there's an avalanche over uh, the five-mile uh, section of the auto road. Uh, sometimes that requires a lot of plowing to get through. So there have been times it's taken uh, six hours to make it up to the summit. Wow. Wow, that that's really something. Just just to get to work, you know, people, uh, you know, I guess don't appreciate that. Six hours to get from the bottom of the mountain to the top. That is that's really something. So, what are what are the sleeping accommodations like? There are bunk rooms on the summit. Uh, if people have been there in the summer when the gift shop and the restaurant are open, uh, in the winter uh, all of that is closed and most of the building is unheated. It's just the far corner where the observatory living quarters are uh, is still heated. Uh, so that big building on the summit, most of that is empty and unheated uh, throughout the winter. Uh, and there are uh, five or six bunk rooms where people stay. Uh, there's a nice kitchen where we, uh, we uh, make those meals that have the recipes in the back of the book. Yeah. Uh, and there's a little living room uh, as well as uh, the office where we work upstairs. Do you get to see much TV while you're up there? 
we're usually so busy, uh, there, there's not a whole lot of TV. Uh, I know uh, there is a, uh, or at least there was when I was there, uh, a recording of uh, the movie The Shining, because The Shining also features a snowcat, like what we use to yeah. drive up to work. And I suppose that's not the best movie to have as your only choice at a isolated mountaintop location, but, uh, but it's there. Is it is it ever tough to sleep up there, given uh, some of the the wind conditions and you know the other elements that you have to deal with? Uh, the days and the shifts are so long yeah. that usually uh, it's not hard. At least it wasn't hard for me to go to sleep. But you're definitely right about the noise of the wind. I suppose that takes some getting used to. Uh, it, it you can definitely hear it. It it is howling. It is a constant. Uh, a constant howling noise outside. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet it is. So it does, I'm sure, take some getting used to. But you, you, you talk about the length of the shift and everything like that, and you're you're ready to go to bed, I guess, when uh, when that time rolls around. And you must have a, a, a great kitchen, though. You mentioned the kitchen to uh, to take care of uh, you know the folks that are up there. Who is there? Somebody that's designated to, to do the cooking, or do you all share in that in that? In, uh, the observatory has a volunteer program where most weeks a, uh, a member of the observatory yep. um, uh, will come up as a volunteer cook and, and handle most of the cooking. There have been weeks where the volunteer canceled at the last minute, they got sick or something came up. Uh, there have also been weeks, I should say, where the volunteer, well, we realized once they got up there, they couldn't cook. Uh, and uh, so sometimes uh, when that happens, the crew all just divvies up the chores and takes turn cooking on alternate days. Uh, my tradition uh, was to always do homemade deep dish pizza from scratch. Uh, one, one day a week, I volunteered to make uh, uh, deep dish pizza from scratch, the sauce, the dough, everything from scratch. Um, uh, one day a week. Uh, I... I thought I made enough the first time I did that. I had, I had uh, five or six uh, cast iron frying pans filled with uh, pizza of different, uh, with different toppings. Uh, but that same day, we had a search and rescue. Uh, someone had gotten trouble on the mountain. I think they had broken their leg, and we needed uh, people from the observatory and from the Appalachian Mountain Club to uh, help uh, carry them to the auto road where they could be driven down. And uh, the uh, the whole rescue team was on the summit after after the rescue was done, and that's when the pizzas came out of the oven. And so that three hours of work disappeared in about five minutes I'll because bet. everyone yeah. was really hungry. So <laughs> wow. after that, I always made extra. Yeah, always made extra pizza. The, the, yeah, pizza never goes to waste, does it? No, no. <laughs> there, there you go. So uh, I I understand uh, from the book that uh, a number of the weather observers have gone from the peak to pole, from peak to pole, transferring from uh, Mount Washington to Antarctica. Yes, I guess once you've worked at the windiest place on Earth, uh, the next logical place to go is the coldest place on Earth. I guess. Uh, (laughs) I have not been to Antarctica, but several of my coworkers have. Uh, So just talking to them, uh, some of the differences they pointed out are uh, it's much, much colder at South Pole but, but the poles not have the uh, the same winds, the same consistency of winds on Mount Washington. So uh, I suppose that is the trade-off. Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> but certainly uh, they're they're accustomed to very cold conditions. But uh, what what would be the uh, the lowest temperature that that you've heard about uh, in Antarctica? I believe uh, the coldest temperature ever on Earth uh, was uh, in Antarctica, something like. 
minus one fifty. Wow. Uh, that, that's not exact, but it's 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 around that uh, uh, that ballpark minus one fifty. Whereas on Mount Washington, I believe the coldest temperature we've ever had was minus forty nine. Mm. Uh, of course, that's but, minus forty nine, uh, and the wind's blowing with, hundred miles an hour without the wind chill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so the wind chill, yeah. the wind chill is off the scale. Uh, but uh, still, the, there is a big difference between minus forty nine and minus one hundred forty nine. And so, how many times a day would you have to go out? Uh, you know, especially in those uh, you know those very wintry and, and cold days and nights. At least once an hour, because part of the job is to take an hourly weather observation. Uh, and that means going outside to uh, check certain instruments, take a look at the sky. Uh, uh, in in a strange sense, we have to go out even more when the weather is most extreme because that's when ice starts to cover the instruments. Uh, so part of our job is to go out and climb the tower to knock the ice off the instruments. Uh, there's a special kind of ice called rime ice, R-I-M-E, which is basically frozen cloud. And uh, that just, uh, it, it will cover anything that's outside. Our guest is Eric Pinder, and the book is Life at the Top, Weather, Wonder, and High Cuisine from the Mount Washington Observer, uh, Observatory. And uh, Eric, uh, please stay with us for another few minutes because uh, we, you know, we've really only scratched the surface. So much more to talk about, and uh, we're going to throw in a little baseball, too, at the end of our conversation. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Eric Pinder is our guest. It's Kale and Company live here on WKXL and streaming 24 hours a day at nhtalkradio.com. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back, Kale and Company live for this Tuesday on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. We're chatting with Eric Pinder, author of Life at the Top, Weather, wonder, and high cuisine from the Mount Washington Observer uh, Observatory as Eric is taking us behind the scenes here. And I want you to tell us about Nin, one of the great characters in your book. Nin was the best cat ever. Uh, Nin was a cat who showed up as a stray cat at the home of one of the meteorologists in uh, Putney, Vermont, and was so friendly, we thought, what a, what a perfect uh, mascot for the summit. Uh, there's always been a tradition of having a cat as a member of the crew ever since 1932. And uh, Nin, uh, Nin certainly took to the role right away, uh, was uh, really friendly with people, would be out wandering around the summit, and people would say, what's a, what's a, what is a house cat doing on top of the mountain? And then <laughs> Nin would kind of wander back to the observatory, uh, kind of leading people like the Pied Piper uh, uh, to the to the observatory desk. Uh, if the crew went out for a hike, sometimes Nin would follow along, sometimes for miles. Uh, Nin has hiked over to Mount Clay and back. Uh, some of the other cats have hiked down to Lake of the Clouds and back. Uh, so uh, it, it is it is nice having a cat as a member of the crew. And uh, you, you based your children's book, Cat in the Clouds, uh, on the adventures of Nin. Uh, yes, uh, the book is kind of a cat's eye view of what goes on <laughs> on top of Mount Washington. And uh, you have written uh, any number of children's books at, at this at this point. Uh, yes, a, uh, a funny thing happened uh, a while back. Everyone in my circle of friends started having kids, and I was hiking with two friends who had a one-year-old. Uh, uh, their one-year-old was uh, uh, in a backpack, and we were all hiking. And uh, as we were hiking, they recited from memory an entire Dr. Seuss book. 
Wow. Uh, all the way down the trail. And I, I was listening as they were uh, reciting this Dr. Seuss book and realized in a way it was almost like a song uh, because uh, that type of book, uh, Seuss-like books, uh, they're, they're not just read on the page, they're performed, they're yeah. read aloud. So every word, every syllable has to have a kind of music to it, uh, which makes writing that kind of book almost like writing a song. And I thought, I want to I try that. And you did, and you uh, have done it over and over again now through the years. Uh, yes, I think I have uh, six, uh, six books for children now. That, that is really something. But uh, you have published uh, other works uh, as well. Uh, yes, uh, I have some other books about hiking. Uh, North to Katahdin is my attempt to be a modern-day Henry Thoreau and to figure out why do we like the outdoors anyway, despite mosquito bites and mud and sore feet. And uh, 200 pages in, I'm still not sure I've quite figured out the answer. <laughs> and that's about your experiences uh, in Maine. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Mount Katahdin in Maine, in terms of difficulty of hiking, is very similar to Mount Washington, but the experience when you get to the top is quite different because it's so remote, because it doesn't have any uh, auto road, it doesn't have a gift shop on the top, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, much more isolated. So uh, getting, to the, getting to the top of both mountains is a, a similar um, uh, experience in terms of uh, difficulty, but the... Uh, the the ambiance the uh, the experience once you're actually on the summit is very very different. And of course, uh, you you get uh, a number of visitors uh, every year to come to the observatory. Uh, what are some of the things that they're uh, most curious about when when they get there? Uh, everyone wants to. Well, first, everyone goes and pets the cat. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, but everyone's curious about the wind. Uh, everyone's everyone who at least signs up for that sort of trip usually wants to see. Uh, some of the extreme weather, see the wind, uh, or see a really amazing view. Um, the rangers at the uh, state park on the summit uh, keep a book of unusual questions that people have asked over the years, and uh, some of them are quite amusing. Um, are the trails lit for night hiking? Uh, the grass looks so nice up here. Who cuts it? Uh, but my all-time favorite, it was, on a, it was on a clear day when the visibility was 130 miles. Uh, and on days like that, you can see the Adirondacks in New York. You can see the Atlantic Ocean. And a ranger was telling a group of visitors, uh, on days like today, we can see five states in Canada. Uh, and someone asked, can we see New Hampshire from here? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But uh, you talk about the, uh, the humans that, uh, that visit the observatory, but uh, a lot of wildlife uh, up there as well. Bears will sometimes show up. Uh, there's a, a blueberry patch uh, down the mountain ways where sometimes we would go and pick blueberries for uh, pancakes for breakfast. And sometimes we would get there and find that the bears were already there. Uh, so uh, we'd have to share the blueberries with them. But the uh, strangest animal I ever saw on the mountain was a raven sledding. Uh, I, I looked out the window and I saw on top of a mound of snow, uh, a mound of snow was about 10 feet high, there was a raven perched there. And as I watched, the raven tucked in its wings, yeah. flopped on the side, rolled down the hill, got up and shook the snow off his wings, waddled back up to the top of the hill and rolled down again and again and again for half an hour. So <laughs> I guess just like us, ravens like to play in the snow. I guess so. I guess so. And I, I, 
You also mentioned about the uh, you know, toboggan trails uh, up there that uh, you've experienced. Uh, yes, I'm not sure they're allowed to do this anymore, uh, but when I was there in the uh, 90s and early 2000s, uh, sometimes at the end of our shift, we would sled home from work. We would sled down to our cars. And I've got to say, nothing beats an eight-mile sled ride. Wow. <laughs> I can only imagine. Down Mount Washington. That's, that is unbelievable. And uh, I, I read a little bit about uh, some flying squirrels that were once there. That, was, uh, that only happened once yeah. when I was there, and it was the most bizarre experience. I don't know where they came from, but one summer, just for a week or so, flying squirrels were everywhere. Um, I, I was still doing the night shift uh, that week, and uh, I came downstairs at 3 a.m., and one of the crew was kind of half awake, uh, rubbing his eyes, saying, I was fast asleep, and a flying squirrel ran across my face. Uh, and just for one week, they were everywhere, and then they just disappeared, and uh, I never saw them again. However, I was talking to one of the original crew members, uh, Alex McKenzie. He was there during the world record wind in 1934, and uh, he mentioned that one year, just for a week, when he was working there in the 1930s, the same thing had happened. Uh, so I don't know, maybe it's like a 50-year plague or something. <laughs> Every 50 years, flying squirrels appear for one week. Wow, uh, that that is something. So, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about uh, your experiences atop uh, Mount Washington and uh, your, your writing, uh, children's books, and, uh, and, and other books as well. What, what are you working on now? I'm working on a book about teaching. Uh, I've, I've taught uh, for quite a while at a number of colleges around New Hampshire, uh, including a uh, college that no longer exists, uh, Chester College, right. uh, which was a small college uh, in the woods. Uh, so I'm working on a book of uh, funny stories uh, from uh, teaching there, especially uh, leading uh, nature, nature writing uh, field trips. And, of course, I'm also working on some more kids' books as well. And uh, I know uh, you, you mentioned to me that uh, you have written a science fiction story uh, about baseball curses, uh, which is inspired in part by the Red—I even hate to bring this up, but <laughs> by the Red Sox losing Game 6, the, uh, the Bill Buckner game in the 1986 uh, World Series. What, what's that all about? Uh, yes, I was just a kid when that happened, but I still remember Game 6 and uh, the ball going out into the— Going, going out into left field or right field, I, I don't remember which one, but I, I remember Bill Buckner. Uh, so I was uh, trying to write a, a good science fiction story, and uh, uh, the story is called The Valhalla Wager. It's about baseball curses, mythology, and astronomy, which I know is a weird combination. But the spark for the story was thinking back to that game, Game 6. There was a point where they were so close to winning. It, it seemed like the Red Sox were sure to win. The only thing that could possibly stop them was divine intervention. Uh, so when I was writing the story, I thought, what if, uh, what if it actually was a kind of divine inter intervention? What if it was the uh, Norse trickster god, Loki, uh, who caused that ball to go between Bill Buckner's legs, caused them to lose the game? Uh, so it was just thinking back to how improbable it was that they, they would lose that game uh, that led to the story. And it was divine intervention. <laughs> yes, it, it, it had to be because there's no other way they could have lost that no game. No other way the Mets <laughs> could have beaten the Red Sox in that World Series except for divine intervention. You know, they were so close, as you know, to, to winning that World Series, which would have 
you know, certainly broken the curse, which you know began in 1918 after they won the World Series, and they they hadn't won a World Series to that point in 1986 since 1918, uh, and they even posted, you know, they, they they had it up on the scoreboard at Shea Stadium at the time. The, the MVP of the World Series, Marty Barrett of the Red Sox. <laughs> and and uh, they took it down after about five seconds, but it was up there. <laughs> he, even the guy who ran the scoreboard thought the Red Sox were going to win. But at any rate, Eric Pinder, we appreciate you being with us today. And uh, I, I would recommend Life at the Top, Weather, Wonder, and High cu- Cuisine from the Mount Washington Observatory to, uh, to anyone. It's a very entertaining book. And uh, even if you just like to cook, uh, there's some great recipes in the back of the book. So, Eric, I I thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me on the show. All right. Eric Pinder will return. Kale and Company live here on WKXL and streaming everywhere around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. Kale and Company live here on this Tuesday. WKXL 1450 AM 103.9 on the FM dial in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond, and streaming around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. Apparently, someone has let the uh, administration know that we have a crisis at our border out in the West and Southwest because more than 160 soldiers from the New Hampshire National Guard, are being deployed to the United States border with Mexico. That was announced on Monday by Governor Sununu. Governor said the move is a response to a federal mobilization order from the Department of Defense, apparently finally admitting that we have a crisis and have had a crisis for quite some time at our borders in the West and Southwest. And they are impacting Every state in the country, not just those on the border, but every state with uh, the drugs and weapons that are coming into this country illegally. And it makes every state virtually a border state uh, with uh, the, the amount of uh, illegal uh, immigrants that are coming in to our country uh, each and every day. Governor Sununu said the soldiers are going to be focused on surveillance acting as eyes and ears for the customs and border protection agents handling what's being described as a humanitarian crisis. Did they just find out about this? I mean, is this news to the Department of Defense? According to uh, Greg Heilshorn, who is the Director of Public Affairs for the New Hampshire National Guard and has done a terrific job for a number of years there, They will be managing surveillance posts along the border uh, that they're responsible for, and that will allow the agents to focus more on the ground and dealing with people coming directly across the border. Uh, Governor Sununu says guard members from uh, more than a dozen states are being deployed to assist with the trafficking of people, weapons, and drugs at the border. He said that because it's a federal request, The Biden administration is paying for it. The governor said issues on the southern border, particularly drugs, directly affect New Hampshire and every other state as well. 
uh, in this country. According to uh, Sununu, he says this deployment, even more than others, directly affects New Hampshire when you're talking about the human trafficking, the drugs, the money, and the weapons that are coming across the border. That's exactly what these orders are for these men and women to be there to provide support services and to push back on what's coming across the border. And uh, that deployment is expected to last for a year. They had the send-off yesterday in Pembroke. And if you pick up an edition of today's Concord Monitor, uh, Ray Duckler has an article about the the send-off at uh, Pembroke uh, yesterday. And the unit uh, will include about 44 soldiers in the 941st Military Police Battalion, uh, which will offer command and control over uh, four subordinate units or companies from the Granite State, uh, Rhode Island, Illinois, and Kentucky. Approximately 500 soldiers overall will serve in this operation, covering 250 miles of border extending to the Gulf of Mexico. So at least the government knows, because sometimes you had to wonder about this with millions since Joe Biden took office, over over 2 million, approaching 3 million illegal immigrants have entered this country at our borders and the West and Southwest. And it has impacted the entire country. And finally, Finally, someone has woken up to that fact, apparently, as the National Guard is being deployed uh, to those borders. And certainly our thoughts and prayers are with those uh, National Guardsmen who uh, have served us so long uh, and uh, so well and being deployed now to the border. Galen Company live here on WKXL. And new poll from the St. Anselm College Survey Center shows two issues that are dominating the conversation among New Hampshire voters right now, and I bet you can guess what they are. All right, time's up. The economy and abortion. Online surveys of 901 registered voters in New Hampshire show two headline issues, the economy and inflation at 33% are the most important in determining how the respondents will vote. But coming up behind that issue and rising eight points since the last St. Anselm College poll in early August is the issue of abortion. It's now the most important issue for 20% of registered voters. Abortion has gone from 12 to 20% being their top priority, according to the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College, Neil Levesque. The poll was conducted on September 27th and 28th and has a margin of sampling error of plus or minus 3.3%. So that new poll is out. We'll be talking with uh, Neil about that in the uh, not-too-distant future. Uh, Some Granite Staters said they see the November election as a chance to respond to the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade and draw a line in the sand for reproductive rights. 
So uh, there you have it. We'll be chatting with Neil Levesque in the not-too-distant future about that uh, latest uh, poll coming out from uh, St. Anselm College. Uh, again, uh, 33% of those responding uh, say economy slash inflation is the top issue. 20% uh, say it's abortion. 10% say it's elections and voting. 10% say it's government spending and taxes. Taxes. Uh, 6% say the environment and climate change. And 5% say the largest issue uh, of their concern is immigration. Today, Tuesday, August the 4th, it is Cinnamon Roll Day. Isn't every day kind of Cinnamon Roll Day? Uh, but uh, today is specific, specifically uh, Cinnamon Roll Day. It's also Improve Your Office Day, uh, National Fruit at Work Day. Seen a lot of people over the past uh, couple of weeks out at the apple orchards around uh, New Hampshire. Very, very busy time for apples and, uh, you know, pick your own apples. Lots of people uh, out yesterday. I saw a couple of uh, local apple orchards yesterday. Lots of people, lots of families out there picking their own apples. Always a great thing to do. And uh, take them to work, take them to school, give one to the teacher. It's also uh, National Golf Day today. So we'll see how many people are out on the uh, golf courses of New Hampshire uh, taking advantage of National Golf Day. It's National Ships in Bottles Day. I've always wondered how they get those big ships in those tiny little bottles. But today is the day dedicated to ships in bottles. It's also Taco Day, National Taco Day. Appropriate being on a Tuesday, Taco Tuesday, National Taco Day. It's National Vodka Day, so you can uh, perhaps uh, wash those tacos down with a little vodka. And World Animal Day being celebrated on this, the fourth day of October 2022. I remember the fourth day of October in 1967. And I remember it because it was game one of the World Series, Red Sox and the St. Louis Cardinals at Fenway Park. Red Sox had not been in a World Series since 1946, so there was 21 years between World Series appearances for the Boston Red Sox. It was the impossible dream year, a year that uh, people of a certain age, like myself, will never forget. A year the Red Sox uh, came from the previous season of finishing a half game out of last place to winning the American League pennant. It turned the entire franchise around, 1967, and today is the anniversary of Game 1 of that World Series, which uh, was won by the St. Louis Cardinals 2-1. to one. Uh, The only run, interestingly enough, that uh, the Red Sox scored in that game against St. Louis, Game 1 of the World Series, was a home run by the starting pitcher for the Red Sox that day, who was Jose Santiago. It was not Jim Lomborg because Lomborg had pitched on October 1st and wasn't ready to go until uh, Game 2 of the World Series. So Santiago faced Bob Gibson, 
of the St. Louis Cardinals, Hall of Famer. In game one, Red Sox lost 2-1, to one, and the only run was the home run by the pitcher, Jose Santiago. Uh, Red Sox, by the way, won last night. How about that? That's cause for celebration. They only have two games left in the regular season, tonight and tomorrow afternoon against the Tampa Bay Rays at Fenway. And if you didn't stay up until the end of the game, San Francisco 49ers beat the Los Angeles Rams, the defending world champion Rams, the Super Bowl champion Rams, did not look like Super Bowl champions last night. 24-9, the Niners over the L.A. Rams. That'll do it for this edition of Kale & Company. Thanks to our guest, Eric Pinder, author of Weather, Wonder, and High Cuisine from the Mount Washington Observatory. Join us tomorrow for another edition of Kale & Company just after 8 o'clock right here on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Have a good Tuesday, everyone.